Kewell, and with me is Roger Bell West. The underscore is silent. Roger has recently suffered a bout of matrimony and is changing his name. I suppose the the chap at, uh, the chap at the office you're changing with should be glad you're not putting a tilde in there instead, or a dot, or an asterisk, or an unpronounceable symbol. Yeah, let's leave it at that. And this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, um, a podcast about role-playing games, and we're here to talk about that. We have actually had some feedback and people saying they like what we've been doing, so we feel terribly cheered. And one of the people who's been writing to us is Robert Duchet. Hello, Robert. This is in answer to your query about what I actually did when I adapted RuneQuest to my uh, current campaign. Uh, as I mentioned, I had been doing in a previous podcast. And we're going to take that as our cue to discuss generally systems and settings and how the two of them interact and the things we do with them. So, to answer the specific question first, I decided, um, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, earlier this year to start running a RuneQuest Glorantha game mostly intending to reuse all the RuneQuest 3 and RuneQuest 2 material that I accumulated over the course of the 1980s and the 1990s. This is a temptation for those of us with large games shelves. Uh, well, it, it seemed a shame, and my players assured me that they either hadn't played in that universe before or couldn't remember any of the times that I'd done it before, mm. lying through their teeth. So I decided to sit down and take a look at what was available to me. I did skim through the new releases of RuneQuest, the Mongoose and the post-Mongoose versions, but I decided, old-fashioned grognard that I am, that I'd go back to what I was happiest with, a modification of RuneQuest 3, the Avalon Hill version. This was the first one that was released, not specifically tied to Glorantha, but was heavily used for Glorantha and later, even so. It was, yes, and it was... um, it was, even then, unpopular with people who are even more grognardy than I am, um, saying that RuneQuest 2 was the right system and it was perfectly good and what do they have to go and change it for? But I liked RuneQuest 3 and I played it a lot, so... But there were things about it that were unsatisfactory. And having read through all the subsequent ones, I've even got a copy of the unreleased RuneQuest 4 Adventures in Glorantha. There's snobbery for you. And having gone through all of that, I decided on a few minor modifications. I started with um, character generation, because it's at the front of the book. Now, those of you who remember RuneQuest 3 will remember that the terrible thing about it was you were probably a farmer. If you use this system as uh, laid out, you would probably generate, as the starting point for your great heroic character, someone who had been... um, ploughing fields or um, tending sheep uh, for the past bit of his life and picked up a few skills but really wasn't um, that wonderful as an adventuring hero. (laughs) So the first thing I did was to reduce the amount of randomness in the system. I kept some of the randomness. I said, this is I think something I stole from uh, one of the versions of D&D. You have five 3D6 rolls and you have two 2d6 plus 6 rolls, yes. which are intelligence and size. Roll the total number of rolls you've got to roll, and then assign. I think 
RuneQuest 3 in the book had something like that, but it may have been more restrictive. Uh, that, that it, it certainly had an option for assigning roles, but it, it wasn't quite as freeform as that. Well, I think uh, I, I think that may have come in that may have come in later. There, what there is a, a pure design your uh, your stats option, but it's a little ungenerous in, right. in my estimation. I decided no, I won't have any of that. They seemed happy enough with that, and then I said, right, you can either have five years previous experience because I do love the way you get a block of skills per year in RuneQuest 3 um, each previous profession has a block of skills and spells and other attributes which come together over the amount of previous experience your character has. Working something like what another system one might call a template as in yeah. if, you, if you apply this you will get someone who's at least moderately competent at that particular job. Yeah. And that was one of the big features of, uh, I think, one of the step forwards in RuneQuest, steps forward in RuneQuest Three. You can see it in a much more freeform way in current versions of Call of Cthulhu. So I said to them, right, either you can have five years previous experience in anything you choose, or you can have ten years of previous experience in a random background. Most of them chose and went to be warriors of various sorts. Uh, two of them went for random backgrounds and turned out to be a farmer and a herder. Which is what the odds would favour, really. Yeah, but um, they, uh, they aren't hanging back, and occasionally the fact they know what plants are and what animals are <laughs> turns out to be sort of useful. Um, all of them, uh, this was the background of the campaign, are refugees, um, Wanted persons are fleeing the Lunar Empire after the failure of Starbrow's Rebellion, for those of you who know the Glorantham background. The name is familiar, at least. Yeah. So, in order to make the characters slightly more detailed, more interesting, and slightly more powerful, I then took um, a set of categories. Mundane equipment, magical equipment, family traits connections and complications the mundane and magical equipment are are fairly clear what they are you have an extra set of really good armor you have a sword that will burst into flame right. you have a magic power storing crystal family skills are your character has a bonus either in an area of skills or in a specific skill uh, one character took um, I'm very good at learning languages which is proving to be useful Family connections are... This was intended to be, and is turning out to be, a peripatetic campaign. They wander all over the place, going wherever the chasing lunar empire sends them. Right. And so I said, sometime during the campaign, you'll be able to discover that your character has connections in the local healer temple, knowledge temple, um, the local criminal fraternity, that sort of thing. Right. It doesn't have to be at any one specific point, but at one time during the campaign, you can cash this in. It's a character type that a lot of role-playing games handle quite poorly. The guy who's been everywhere, knows people all over the place. You drop him in a random city mm. and, oh yeah, I know the guy who runs the underworld. Oh well, yeah, but I'm, only get, I'm, I'm not being that good, though I suspect the guy who chose I Have Connections with a Criminal Syndicate is going to um, use it all over the place, because, well, that's reasonable. Yeah. Presumably they had some number of points to distribute between these options. No, no. What I did was, there were six players. I wrote seven entries in each category. 
I gave them a power roll, a luck roll, to choose which category they were going to look at first. Right. And in that order, they chose out of the piles. And they then chose and then passed it round the table to the next person. So everybody got first pick of one category. And the fifth category was complications, um, dis- drawbacks, disadvantages to the character. Some of these worked out better than others in, in, the, in the system. They're not particularly, any of them, game mechanical. But um, one person has, it has a, a weakness for the drink and mm. cannot, well, he's not addicted, but he can't, dr- he, ca- he can't drink in an all-anthy culture where he's supposed to be a great, bold, boasting hero. In fact, he falls over after two points. It's a little embarrassing. Right. Um, the person who chose having a, a younger sister um, who hangs around and, and is dependent and causes trouble, mm. that worked out a lot, a lot better. And so they chose each of them, one of the complications, one of the pieces of mundane equipment, one of the pieces of magical equipment, and so on. And that made the characters more detailed and more interesting. And that's about all I did with character generation. Later characters who come along are generated according to what the plot allows. Yeah, as in, this is the sort of person you might meet here, so that's going to constrain... Well, they, uh, when I got a, the extra player, the um, barbarian, no, sorry, the nomad uh, lady fighter who they had just uh, rescued from the troll slavers um, uh, became his PC. And I've just had somebody join them who was leaving service in, in the city of Parvis and coming back in the way they were going. And their new plot complication is going to drive a lot of the next bit of the campaign. Some situations are more constraining than others. In my World War Two campaign, I have a bunch of MI5 agents who were in Stalingrad when one of their when one of the PCs uh, died <laughs> in 1942. It's not like paranoia; you can't just drop in another clone. <laughs> <laughs> so now they have a they, now they have a um, defecting well maybe not defecting Soviet mm. agent. Yeah, how are they going to? No, I don't want to know. It's, let's not let's not that, that, that divert ourselves. Diplomacy and mind control. Fair enough. But um, okay, I, I think that's a very good example of adapting a system hmm. to produce the effects you want in a particular setting. Yeah. And I think it would be fair to say that since the very early days, people have been doing this. Um, the the first actual licensed game I'm aware of was the Star Trek role playing game. There may have been hmm. a, possibly Elric. Elric, I think. I think I think Stormbringer was 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 before that. And did a nice job of it, too. But generally speaking, for, for I think, much of the 1980s, the, the standard thing was if you wanted to play in some setting that already existed but didn't have an official game for it, or even if it did, you would just adapt whatever system you felt comfortable with. And for some reason, it always turned out to be Dungeons & Dragons, which depressed me. And well, a lot of people were comfortable with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. We'll go get. We'll get. Let's not go into my problems with D and D again, or or D twenty, or, or whatever it's called. But um, th- this this works better in some ways than others, and there there are some aspects of a system that don't really matter for, for game flavour. You know. Okay. You you can get into a fight and hit things, and broadly speaking, one of you is going to fall over. Yeah, there but, there but are more it, subtle points. But well, yeah, it, it does start very quickly become becoming something flavors I mean if say my, my tough hero gets into a barroom brawl mm. which is a thing that tough heroes seem to have a habit of doing in a variety yeah. of games is, is he going to be so good that he can um, 
parry and block everybody away from him and, and walk out grinning having knocked out the entire bar? Or yeah. is he he's still going to be very good, but does he have to be a bit careful about it and he's going to take some damage, particularly when somebody pulls a knife and he's going to win maybe because he is that good, but he's going to come out bruised? Yeah, the problem with what D&D called subdual damage, um, which is a, a mechanic some, some game systems have, some game systems have to have to match the genre that they're doing, is uh, it's a tricky one because, realistically, you can kill somebody with your fists. There's, yep. Isn't there a John Wayne movie, The Quiet Man, all about a man who, who's given up fighting uh, with his fists because he because uh, he, he killed someone or do, that, do, I, do I misremember it's certainly entirely possible and it happens by accident sometimes yeah and I feel I don't know there's a simulationist bit of me that wants games to that involve barroom brawls to involve the chance of something really nasty happening um, it, it, it's not something that people do for fun in the real world if they're vaguely sensible yeah there are a lot of vaguely unsensible people out absolutely there. But look, looking at this in, in game terms, and one of the things one could talk about is a cinematic versus realistic mm. axis. But for for example, I was reading somebody's um, read through of the current Red Quest Six. Yeah, I think that's the current one. And it's not a setting specific book; it's designed to be agnostic on that. Yeah. But it has luck points as part of mechanics. Yeah. And and luck points imply things yeah. about the sort of story you're going to be telling. Well, that is one thing. Going back to our, to our original chat there's one thing I did as a background thing for the, for this game I want them to survive and they've only had one fatality so far so I gave them a magical Glorantham doodah those of you who read the hero quest materials or um, uh, Glorantham will be aware of the idea of the hero band a group of people who have a magical totem that binds them together for their common purpose I gave them a minor magical totem which if they sacrifice power points to it and if they all do a ritual around it uh, once a week will give them a number of uh, re-rolls equal to the power points sacrificed to it. Something one might think of as one's own private cult in miniature. Yeah, and um, they are they are building it up one of these days... Um, the spirit inside may awaken to full consciousness, in which case the um, the magic will get much more powerful and much more complicated. But that's for another day. And of course, they're not god learners at all doing things like that. It's perfectly uh, sensible. One of them has one percent god learner knowledge, and um, <laughs> due to unwisely reading a scroll, but uh, <laughs> ah, communist propaganda. Yes, <laughs> yes. Never mind. One of the things, I, I, if I may. Going back to specifically what I did with RuneQuest, one of the things I did was look at the combat system. By and large, the RuneQuest uh, 3 combat system is pretty good. But there was one small weakness I wanted to fix and exploit, which is the specials rule. Um, if you... All skills in, Rune, RuneQuest have, in RuneQuest 3 have... If you roll 20% of what you need, you get a special effect. It's better... It's not as good as a critical, but it's better than which is a, twen- a twentieth. A critical roll is a twentieth yep. of the of what you need to roll, and is as good as you can possibly get. Yeah. Now, one of the problems with criticals with specials, rather in com- in combat, was you get a different special if you're poking somebody with a sword or whether you're slashing somebody with a sword, which 
Unfortunately, you are supposed to nominate beforehand. Nobody ever did this. We got, we got, mm-hmm. when we were running before, we were, we, it was always, oh, I've got a special, Will you sla- are you impaling, or are you slashing? Which did you say beforehand? I didn't say beforehand, oh, damn. So, G- Gips has a similar flaw in that many weapons have two attack modes. With, with, you know, as with a sword, you, you can stick somebody or, or you can swing it at yeah. him. And this will quite possibly do a different amount of damage and a different type of damage. I, I, in in, GURPS, it's, so, so in what, GURPS, you really do have to specify beforehand because yep, so, every so, time it makes a difference. What we've ended up doing is if, if you didn't specify, it's whatever's listed first on the, sh- on the character sheet. Well, that's a good rule. I like that. Well... Going back to this, so what I taking a, a cue from some of the later versions, I think starting with uh, Rinqu- the aforementioned uh, non-published Request Four, I decided if you get a special, you get a special effect. You decide after you roll the special what the special effect is. These aren't the one-second um, combat rounds of of GURPS. These are mm, ten or ten, twelve, ten or twelve like seconds, some, something like that. A lot can happen. It's not as big as a as a D&D combat round but it's uh, it's not it's not as tiny as GURPS you're still not really claiming to model individual blows necessarily well you're, you're modelling there will pro- there will be one or two blows per, per round but you're you're modelling a whole lot of shuffling about and, and ducking and diving so after you get the special you think aha I now have the opportunity to either thrust deep with my sword or poke him in a specific location or do any number of other things. I expanded the special rules for um, for, de- for defensive manoeuvres, like uh, right. a parry will allow you riposte on a special, dodge will allow you something which I forget at this moment in time. But that seems to work better. I've seen it done entirely independent of my brilliant um, improvisation in Dragon Warriors as well. And I think that works mm-hmm. as a rule that every time you get a good result, it should mean something but it shouldn't restrict you in what you're going to, to do, if you see what I mean. One of the things I've noticed players doing is being excited about a good die roll. Yeah. This means the characters achieved something, not that they have, but the players still get excited about it, and this yeah. is great, and one should be able to take advantage of that and, and go on further with it, so yeah. I think that's a reasonable... It makes... It makes it, if a good roll means that you can improve the gamist success and the story at the same time, that seems to me to be a, a double win. And it's probably more fun to say, I got lucky, now I'm going to take advantage of it, than it is to say, if I get lucky, I will do this, oh well, I didn't, I'll just hit it normally. Yeah, that, that, that second result, that second is dull, and, and we want to avoid dull. Uh, maximum gain fun, which is Michael O'Brien's uh, <laughs> famous uh, dictum. I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent in favour of maximum game fun when it destroys the logic of the simulation or of the story. But I'll go for it when I can. You know, one could argue that if the players and the GM is one of the players are going to enjoy simulation and story, then that is part of game fun anyway. Yeah. Good. What one example of adapting a system to a setting? Uh, that always struck me as a bit of a odd fit, though not necessarily a bad one, was was Gerb's Vampire, yeah. which for for um, those who weren't around at the time was, was a pair of books 
in the early nineties. Yeah, when, um, when the, the White Wolf thing was was becoming popular, but wasn't wasn't the world devouring monster that it would become a few years later. Well, I think it was, it was it was devouring continents by that point. Yeah, okay. And uh, they, did, they did Mage: The Ascension and they, they the Werewolf as well. Two books of Vampire. One for Mage, I think. I don't know whether it was one or two for Werewolf. I think it was two for. It was. It was in theory going to be two for each of the worlds, but the deal fell apart. Mm. Um, so th- this was, in essence, a conversion of the vampire setting mm. and the funky powers yeah. to GURPS rules, GURPS third edition, as it was at that point. Now, because of the nature of GURPS, this meant some powers cost more than other powers. Um, in vampire, you just said, "Okay, I've taken three dots in something." Yeah. And it didn't matter what that power was. In GURPS, that you, you could have a factor of three or four difference in the point value based on the utility of what that thing actually got mm-hmm. you. Which meant in a long-term campaign, you ended up getting a, a lot more uh, characters with the less useful powers, because mm-hmm. they were cheaper. Yeah. Getting players to, sa- to save up points is hard anyway, but in the original system, they, it would have been, here is your one power slot, you can get a good power or a not-so-good power. Let's just get the good power, yeah. In GURPS, it was, you, you've now got 20 points saved up. You can get something now, or you can keep saving up for more points for something later. And this is a point at which the simulationist bit of GURPS works against the, uh, the gamist bit. I, it, it's, it, oddly, it's even, even not quite working in Steve Jackson's game's ad- adaptation of their own property, In Nominee. I've, GURPS In Nominee has much the same sort of effect... Theoretically, I ought to be in favour of GURPS in Nominee because one of the major problems I've found within Nominee is that human beings tend to vanish at the level of uh, of the game being about celestials. Right. I I feel that the, the souls of human beings ought to be something valuable and their lives ought to be an issue between the demons and the angels. But actually, at uh, the level when you're talking about about the the uh, the angels... The system is just too crude, too lumpy in its granulation to yep. simulate human beings, and doing it in GURPS would seem to be a way to um, do that. But again, because GURPS has this realistic bias, when you start to look at well, how how much exactly would the ability to convince people of any lie cost in um, in, in GURPS? Things start to fall apart. I think that's probably more doable with GURPS fourth edition than it was in third. Mm. But, yeah, it, it, it's still tricky. And you, certainly, I, I suspect, if you were converting over a party of nominee characters, you would find them getting wildly different point values. Yeah. One thing, um, going back to my original answer, hello, Robert, I'm, I'm getting there. One thing I should make note of is the rules that nobody ever uses. Yes. Um, all games have these. All games have these. Uh, the one in RuneQuest 3, which I tried to fix, but I discovered it. we still didn't use it, is the fatigue rule, rule, which said you add your strength and your constitution together, you take away your encumbrance, and that's the number of combat rounds you've got until you start feeling tired. Right. Oh, and the same applies to the dragon over there. Nobody ever used this rule. I tried transplanting something like the uh, the GURPS uh, encumbrance rules across, but again, I found that uh, we just didn't use it. And every time, it, every time it comes up, I have to uh, hand wave it and say, "Well, you fought for a while. You're feeling tired. You're at a minus five percent. You're at a minus ten percent. 
but combats generally do not last that long. I think possibly because being tired after a fight isn't a thing that is really present in the literary models to a great extent. I mean, the the, the story may say, you know, I, he fought the dragon for three days and he was weary afterwards. <laughs> it doesn't say... He fought the he dragon was less for 30, effective. He fought the dragon for thirty minutes, and he was totally nagged afterwards. Those who, those of us who've watched people in full uh, plate mail whacking at each other, know that they not only need to uh, take take rest, they also need to take uh, swigs of uh, cool, refreshing water to be able to go on to the next round. Yeah, a full plate is not as heavy as I thought it would be, but it's awfully hot. Yeah. Before we go on to more general stuff, I will mention that I've tried to fix RuneQuest sorcery, and I think I have failed. It was a common complaint about RuneQuest 3 specifically, that, that yeah. sorcery is potentially different. I think because it, it was using an exponential scale, and m- many game writers didn't yet know how to how to cope with exponential scales at that point. I, I also found that, uh, that the rule about free int was just plain dumb and unusable. Um, the, it interacted in peculiar ways with the rules about um, familiars for sorcerers, which uh, were also pretty dumb. I'll have a freeform rant. It should be noted I tried to fix this, and I haven't, and this means that the, the sorcery is all off-stage and hand-wavy, which is unfortunate as they're passing through a sorcery-using area at the moment, but hey. I will admit that one of my favourite magic systems is, is the original Pendragon magic system, which is the GM decides what a magician does. Yeah. There are no PC magicians. It just solves a lot of problems. Well, yeah, it's 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 tempting, but not fitting the genre in this case. And, oh, there was something else. Oh, yes, don't make your own life more complicated <laughs> when adapting new rules. This should be written... Um, don't make the GM's life more complicated. I looked at the RuneQuest rules for training, and looked at the new versions of RuneQuest and they had a skill called teaching, which is a perfectly logical skill to exist in any any world. Teaching is, is a skill in the real world. Yep. Not everybody has it. Not everybody who knows how to do a thing can teach you how to do a thing. So I thought I would adapt this. It's a communication skill. I'd stick it in. But I already had a perfectly good luck-based system um, power times five is the basic luck roll in RuneQuest for deciding when training in any particular skill or trait was going to be available to the to the players. They come home with uh, piles of loot. Uh, they say, right, I want I want to train up this skill. I need a system to assign that. I discovered that putting teaching in as a consideration not only is there somebody out there who knows how to do fast draw sword but also um, knows how to teach you about it made my life oh so much more complicated and we went back to the original system after about uh, a month's worth of me going um uh um actually this isn't actually working is it chaps Thinking as a, as a subspecies of rules that nobody uses are rules that it appears that the game designer never intended anybody to use. Original Traveller, Yeah. if you want to learn something, you can take either one year or four years out of your adventuring career and go to school. And then you have a random roll to see if you actually learnt the skill at the end of that. Yeah. 
I've never known anybody even approach using this rule. Well, quite. I'm never quite sure where what the where how the skill system was supposed to advance. Have they fixed it in the latest versions? I believe so. Well, basically, advancement was not meant to be a big thing in yeah. Original Traveller, and we, we assume that pro- progress and improvement in character is an intrinsic part of role playing because D and D did it and Ringquest did it. Mm. And in a fantasy setting, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, a, a lot of fantasy stories are about becoming the big hero. Yeah. A lot of science fiction stories aren't, um, particularly the, the stories of the 50s and 60s that they were using for, mm. as inspiration for a lot of Traveller. Beowulf Schaefer is already a great pilot when, when we first meet him. He doesn't become yeah. a better pilot over the course of the short stories. And so on. Yeah, but um, the trouble with that theory is that if you start out using the, the, the Traveller character generation system it's entirely possible to be a 22 year old ex ex corporal who knows how to use a gun and that's it that suit zero ships boat one yeah what can i do with that quite i agree i I, I don't think it's a perfect implementation but i do i do think that might be why they didn't regard it as such a priority perhaps as the fantasy games did well there's a whole debate to be had about um iconic heroes who who uh, are already Big, tough, and and important heroes, and uh, and the the punk kid off the farm, the Luke Skywalkers, who are changing and getting better. I think that's possibly a thing to get to wander into next. A thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is is a taxonomy of games and settings and just various things one can say about a game All right, go on. in relative isolation from other things about that game. And one of them is, is the default campaign or the default story, however you want to say it, a transformative dramatic story, mm. which is your, which is that your punk kid makes good yeah. or bad? Or is it a melodramatic iconic story where you start off with the big tough hero and he is he goes through the in situations not himself changing particularly but solving but, but alter, altering, altering the world around him even so and th- this is mm. um, I, I think of this very much in terms of serial fiction something like the Doc Savage series it really doesn't matter very much in what order you read them because there is very little carrying over from one story to the next yeah but it has to be noted or if, if we go up the scale a bit Raymond Chandler alright it has to be noted that there are problems with the iconic hero, mostly because sometimes you can say all there is to be said about them in a very few adventures. Um, Sherlock Holmes remains fascinating to the end, um, at least to those of who like Sherlock Holmes. Miss Marple even remains fascinating to the end, and she doesn't. She's already eighty odd at the start, and and fifty years later, she's still eighty odd. But um, I, a Doc Savage, not so much. Um, is yeah, it me um, being a snob or what? Well, not entirely. I'm, I'm quite happy to say I, I enjoy quite a lot of iconic hero series and stories, um, but I'm not going to claim that they have the great literature effect because they are essentially melodramatic. They're about the struggle between hmm. man and man, in, in the classic Greek sense, as opposed to the dramatic, the struggle between man and himself. Yeah. So, and what, so what, if, if if somebody if somebody's biggest problem is, oh dear, I'm not tough enough to mm. beat this guy. Yeah. That that is to me intrinsically just a bit less interesting than if he can have that sort of struggle and sometimes say, well, actually, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to do this. You know, I'm 
I don't entirely agree with this thing that we're doing, mm. and so on. I think the solution with, with the melodramatic hero is that he does change the world, and the world changes under him, perhaps not... Perhaps at the end, at the end story of every um, of every iconic hero, something like the Seven Samurai, or the, rather the Magnificent Seven, when the Old West is dying out, and the heroes are no longer needed. Perhaps that's the logical end to every every saga. That the, the world that that you, you go out, you save the world, and the world no longer needs you. In in the uh, model that particularly occurs to me, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Hmm. He is the guy who was necessary to do the thing that saved everybody, but everybody having been saved, there is no place for him in that society. Yeah. Um, hmm. On the other hand, look, looking at it from a role-playing point of view, that's not particularly satisfying. No, quite. Um, an, an advantage it's is... satisfying that, once. Yeah. Many role-playing campaigns don't end so much as gradually stop, people move away, the GM gets bored, whatever. Mm, true. And so the lack of an actual conclusion is not necessarily a problem. Well, not always a problem. Yeah, I. There are game systems which are all about melodrama. Feng Shui, for instance, yeah. is is all about um, people who are already super competent going out and doing amazing things um, against um, amazing, amazingly powerful, evil but slightly incompetent opposition. Uh, that's fun too. Yeah, but I think. I don't know. There, there comes a point. There is, there is a, a cusp of competence and learning. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is is a good example. The people, at least the the Slayers and the Watchers, start out super competent, but they still have to learn things and they still have to change in response to their life stories, as well as dealing with the fact that the world's going to end because it's Tuesday. Yeah, I, I do think the iconic character lends itself to episodic adventures mm. more than to one big story. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what one thing that, that I look at in that sort of context is borrowing from TV series, where any given episode should at least make some sense to somebody who's never seen another episode. Mm. And yet, particularly in series from the last ten years or so, there's going to be some efforts to have some overarching plot for the entire season and possibly for the entire series. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. Hmm. Yeah, my firm rule about books is I don't start reading except with the first of a series. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I want to. I, I do tend to apply that to TV. What the I, th- TV I think I will enjoy it more if one starts from the beginning, and that's certainly what I tend to do. Yeah. But w- what I'm saying is the storytelling techniques have developed in a, in a setting where hmm. somebody who's coming on at, coming in at series three, episode twelve. Yeah. That may be the first episode they've seen, and they, they are a viewer who, who is to be caught just as much as the guy who started from the beginning is. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm suddenly aware that uh, uh, that I do, in fact, manage when extra players come along, when I have a spare seat, I do actually manage to say to people, well, this is this sort of world, and this is the sort of thing that's going on, you pick the rest up as you go along. Uh, just lo- looking briefly at the um, dramatic side of things, mm. th- th- this is this is in, in role playing terms specifically, uh, is the thing. Yeah. Um, the the dramatic story, the, the learning to be a hero, is is the power game structure that you get in something like D and D, Vampire, most most role playing games, if you're yeah. fair about it. Um, whereas the melodramatic, you you already are 
at least most of what you are going to be. Um, the, the, the games that do this are, I think, outliers in many respects. So in Call of Cthulhu, yeah. because you're only going to live a few sessions probably anyway. Um, so you, you, might, you might as well get used to making, making do with the resources you have, because yeah. that's all you're going to have. Um, it happens a bit in GURPS, because saving up the points of big powers takes a lot of self-control. And time. E- e- even if I'm you're allowed, being too generous with some of my, my players, though. Even if you're allowed to buy big powers, which not not all games will allow. A uh, lot of superhero games, mm. um, generally speaking, you start off as a superhero. Yeah. Getting bigger and more powers is not a primary focus of what you do. Uh, it does seem to work very well in in pop style genre. Yeah. I'm. Yeah, that I'm, I've yet to find a a, uh, a superhero game that I actually like running, and actually, and I actually like the feel of. It, mu- it must be said. I've never been enough of a superhero fan to look very hard. No. Um, I don't object to the concept. I just don't seem to like the implementations I meet. Yeah, and the, and most game systems, GURPS certainly has um, a prejudice in favour of gradually growing and changing and um, improving yourself. Reminds me of a, a GM I know who, when running, for example, a werewolf game in games, rather than saying, here are your 600 points to buy whatever your standard power set is, will say, OK, first of all, spend about 100, 150 points on being the person that you were before you discovered that you were a werewolf, mm. and actually getting some vaguely sensible skills and things, and then use the other set of points to buy Well, that, that's what, what you, what you learned later. I think that's built into the into the White Wolf system as the the prelude and that sort of thing, and very much a good idea. Yeah. If you're going to if you're going to suddenly drop, um, you're not, you're a Harry, you're a wizard, on somebody. Or as in one campaign I ran recently, the the, the opening uh, scenes were you were a bunch of students in 1960s London. You took some interest in drugs. You woken up in a body bag, and you seem to have psychic powers. <laughs> Having got myself sorted with the system, and there were a few other tweaks with uh, the the magic system, which turned out not to be a good idea, but I won't bore you with um, Glorantham Arcana and technicalities at this moment. I'll do it later for special requests. We should move on to discuss what else you drop on your players at the very start. Um, Issues of how complicated it is to get up and going and how much information you have to give them before the game starts. Yeah, I, I think, again, that splits into system and setting. Yeah. All right, system um, first, then. The, there are some games, and D&D is a classic example of this, where pretty much you just roll some dice, you're ready to start playing. You, you want a first-level fighter, mm. you can have a first-level fighter in five minutes, or less. Well, yeah. Um, you also don't need to learn much, and... I think a lot of people's first experience with the D&D back around the time I started was there were a bunch of people shouting in a corner and one of, the, one of them leaned over and said, hey, we need a cleric, join in. And really, you don't, you don't need to know very much to start effectively playing a game like that. And then, then it, the scales across. Something like RuneQuest, it could take half an hour plus in RuneQuest to generate a character. Yeah. And you're picking up a certain amount of world background as well at the same time. Uh, and something like GURPS... It depends on the game, but yeah. if if you are in a setting where you're expecting to do a bunch of 
say, hand-to-hand fighting, which yeah. is something that goes strict in a fair bit of detail. This is really not something that where I would be prepared to throw the books at a player and say, design a character, because you just need to absorb an awful lot of stuff. Well, just to decide even, how strong even with be. even with my, my my regular groups who know GURPS after playing it for many years, I never I never um, start a GURPS campaign without having had at least a couple of sessions, probably whilst the last game was winding down, saying, "This is what we're going to need. This is what it's going to be about. What do all of you want to do?" Yeah. When we when when we come to the first a session of play of a of a GURPS game, then the characters have already been pre-generated, entered on uh, on that nice bit of software that Steve Jackson Games pro- provides, and um, and printed out, and everybody has a character that they've shown to the GM, and everything's sorted out mechanically beforehand. It can't be done any other way, really, other than to say he's a pre-gen. Yeah, I, I know some players with whom I'm happy to say, OK, these are the campaign parameters, go and generate a character. Uh, my Wednesday evening group is among that. But even then, we will generally chat before the game starts, perhaps on the mailing list, Yeah. just to say, OK, this is the sort of character I'm going to play. Is anybody else planning to be a specialist in this? Because if so, let's, yeah. let's one of us change so that we don't uh, tread on each other's toes, that sort of thing. And there are players who you want to be able to say, no, actually, you can't do that because X, Y, Z... No, that's a, that's a little abusive. Um, it's a very useful phrase as well. There are people who know the rules of GURPS better than I do and occasionally try to exploit this, but um, I do insist that it comes through me in the first place. Mind you, I do know the players it's going to be a problem with normally. Hey. And to some extent, I think that's going to, going to blend into setting, because, for example, in that mm. RuneQuest game you were talking about, yeah. you, could, you would not be able to say, OK, you've got your copy of RuneQuest 3, go ahead and generate a character, because you had your custom modifications to it. Yeah. And some of that had to happen with all the players present, such as the picking out of the piles. Yeah. Um, I prefer... When I'm doing a, a random rolled character, I do prefer it to be happening around the table, in front of everybody. It makes later accusations so much less likely. <laughs> there, is, there is always a feeling of, well, he's trying to pull something fast over there, and you do have to manage that. Yes, I have, I have little random internet dice servers, but that can go somewhere, somewhere else at some other time. Yeah. Just being strictly fair to GURPS, some, some of the cut-down books like Dungeon Fantasy and Action mm. uh, have fairly rigid templates, and it would be perfectly reasonable, I think, for a GM to say, right, you must follow one of these templates. Mm. Well, then, he, then he can be reasonably sure that the character that comes out at the other end is going to be acceptable to the game. Yeah. I, uh, personally, I would... I would almost uh, pre-gen everything for a, a dungeon fantasy campaign it should be as easy to to pick up as D. that's what it's trying to emulate we're sticking a bit to our favorite systems at this moment in time well, yeah but all right look, looking more at this at the setting side of things okay um one of my classic rants is i can't get players to read background material this yeah. is not this is not the full story what generally happens is that in any given group i'll have one player who reads the background material in excruciating detail yeah. and points out holes in it, which is useful. And the others will then rely on him to tell them what they ought to know. Hmm. The, they are useful, but they are also a pain in the, in the neck sometimes. Sometimes. Um, there are players who, who know the background in, in excruciating detail and assume that something you said in 1983 still applies. <laughs> Which shows how long I've been with the same group, doesn't it? 
and again this varies a lot between settings though if, if, if you're doing your classic dungeon bash world mm. um then yeah it's fine you know i'm, I'm a fighter i'm a hairy barbarian i'm a bloke in armor yeah. i'm a wizard whatever it doesn't really matter where you came from or what languages you speak as long as you speak the same language as the rest of the party and yeah, on the other hand, you have things like you have Glorantha. Let us take it as a Glorantha is one of the few worlds that I actually try to avoid playing in because there is so much complication in there, and there are people who've been playing it for thirty years continuously, and I haven't. Honestly, it isn't that bad. Um, the characters won't be thirty years old, at least not if I haven't. Not in some campaigns. Well, not in my <laughs> campaigns anyway. And they will know a limited set of stuff yeah um and as long as the players have a, a reasonable grasp on what their own culture is like and what their own gods are like and their own standard of behavior is who their friends are who their enemies are that's about as far as you need to go and starting with it the the with this campaign you're being you're being thrown out of the kingdom because you fought on the the side of the rebellion which has just failed was good enough to start with even with players who'd never played Glorantha before yeah yes it's going to get complicated yes they're starting to discover things about the depth depths of the background um, going back into the previous ages of the world but that's just me I'm feeding it to them in dribs and drabs that certainly helps a lot um, I'm lo- looking at other settings that to me are intimidatingly complex I think a lot of them are simply ones that have been going for a while hmm like Traveller, uh, classic Imperial Traveller yeah. at least, or ones that were designed to be deliberately very distinct from the stuff we're used to. Um, Tecumel, I think, is the Tecumel is the there. is the is the massive is the massive example. Um, I get Tecumel for some reason. I don't get Jerun, um as a setting. I've never been able quite to understand people's enthusiasm for it as a as a world. I know a couple of people who are very keen on it, but I've never actually played it. So um, yeah, I. The thing is, I would, out of reverence, and, and I'm terribly afraid that it is reverence for the late Professor Barker, I'm willing to try and play um, Tecumel pretty damn straight, even though he mixed and mashed things in his own games. Um, I don't feel quite that same reverence for Mark W. Miller and the various people who put together the Traveller in the Third Imperium o- over the years. Part, um, part of the problems with complication are that it has been written by an awful lot of people. Well, yeah, I'm perfectly willing to, to mix and match and stuff my own things into into Traveller and just regard what everybody else has written as um, you know optional and um, and found art that I can pick up and use when I'm feeling lazy. The tricky bit, as far as I'm concerned, is if I've got a player who's done done a lot of playing in that setting, I don't necessarily want to say everything you know is wrong and you've got to start from scratch with everybody else. On the other hand, I don't want everybody else to be at a disadvantage compared with him, and it's, it's a tricky thing to balance. Well, I, I think... So, I, so I'm, I'm, I tend just to not run in the setting at all. Well, I think my, my fe- feeling is... I think you have to explicitly say to uh, players with that good a memory, it may vary... Um, I am the GM and you are not. Well, yeah. Um, look, yes, I'll, I'll 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 take your input, but don't be surprised if I correct you. And I've never had play- I never had a player who said who's walked out of a game saying, um, "This is not the real Glorantha." Yet. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, they they 
If, he, if he's that protective of it, he should be running the damn thing himself. Possibly of being oversensitive in advance. Yeah, yeah um, no, honest, honestly. Just think in terms of the, the, the amount of briefing people will consume. If, if it can be spread out, that's great. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember one of the versions of Rinquest with Glorantha had a... So you're in this culture, here is your worldview. In, what in my a father tells so. me. What my father tells me is about um, maybe a page, page and a half of A4... I'd say, from the point of view of the various uh, local cu- cultures who are our friends, who are our enemies, and it is the best example. You can find these on the on the websites for Grantha. Um, some of them under Gloranthan Voices uh, as a title, I think, and they are the best examples of of giving you the feel of what um, a particular culture is like. Gloranthi are big storm-worshipping hill barbarians. The Yelm worshippers are extremely proud um, city dwellers, obsessed about their ancestry, and the sorcerers are weird people who worship only one god and think all the others are nonsense, and the baboons don't wear trousers. So, they are the best back, uh, brief background briefings that I, that I ever come across. Tekimel is more difficult partly because the names are that much more weird and the social structure is um, that much more complicated. But I believe it does have that standard campaign start off, you are barbarians newly arrived at civilization. Yeah, I, it, I've done that and it does work, but next time, if there is a next time, I think I want to start with a native Sonyani clan somewhere out in the country with its own problems and if you're one clan um, and you're working with and for the clan you've got family, you've got soap opera you can build upon and that's also a good thing Do, do I get a hint that you might be thinking about using bits of rain in such a game? Yes, um, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, in a, in a bit in our, um, in, our ver- in our various uh, in another segment here Thinking about the amount of background material when I'm setting up my own world hmm. I generally try to keep, keep the stuff that players need to know fairly minimal Yeah Um I, 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 I may, well, I, I will almost always know more than I'm putting in the in the briefing document, but the briefing document should be fairly short and fa- fairly straightforward. I, th- I think one of the things that puts people off, one thing that puts me off is, is in reading um, world books and reading some fantasy novels, yeah, uh, is, is the great list of dates uh, at the front and the huge stretch of history that things go, go back yeah. in time. A lot of um, setting books did, did this on the basis that history is what happened before now, therefore it should come at the start of the book. Yeah. Um, and this is the thing um, I, I will admit, you know, I'm, I'm not a great fan of the White Wolf way of doing things in general, but the thing they got absolutely right was to start the books with in-character documents mm. that told you the sort of people who were going to be in this game. Yeah. What the world is like now. Start with what the world is like now, yeah. and you can establish retroactively what the world, what, what has led up to this point. In fact, that's the way that uh, that things get written, um, and and the uh, history should be in the appendix. That's where Tolkien put it. Damn it all. <laughs> Only by force. Well, to, all, all that stuff in the appendices, I understand. He wanted to interlard in the text the way he did with some of the songs and things, but his publisher told him, no, you just can't get away with this, the books will be too big. Mm. <laughs> and well, I think we should be grateful for that. Yeah, and uh, they, they, it does actually work uh, that way. Thank, blessings to the, to, uh, the, the publishers 
because he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, you say you know more about the world. I say that I don't need to know everything about the world to start playing it. Agreed. You find out a lot by doing the game. You discover what the players will need to know by the questions that they ask you. And you can improvise whole civilizations sometimes off there in the background. Well, that happened a long time ago, and that was in the time of the of the great Beakerpot people. And you can shift it into the background. You can go into more detail as it's needed, but you don't know what the world is about until the players tell you what the game is about, I think. Up to yeah. a point. A, a thing that makes me a bit wary of improvisation is that I can quite often come up with something vaguely interesting on the fly. Yeah. Uh, when a player asks, you know, what, what is this about, as it might be. Mm. But if I'm doing it on the fly, then I don't always have time to think about the full implications, and I may well find that I've blocked myself off from something interesting that I wanted to do later. Yeah. Um, so th- this is why I like to stay a little bit ahead of where the players are, at least. Th- yeah, or, or, that, that, that least, only works if you know which direction they're going to go in. Or, or at least keep in mind, Joey, off in the distance, here, here are the things that I would like to throw in eventually, and therefore I won't block any of them. Yeah, that is a, a, a good point. If you do have future plans, then anything in pro should not uh, disallow that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you can always say, actually, it turns out the person who told you that was mistaken. One of the best questions uh, to uh, put to a player when they ask you a question is, who is your character asking that of? <laughs> Who, where is he getting the information? Is he getting it from books? Is he getting it from his old uh, college tutor? Or is it just you asking the universe? Because the, and the universe might lie to you as well. The sources of the unreliable narrator and something not turning out to be quite as it was depicted at first is also a damn useful thing to do. Yeah. I try to avoid saying, actually scrub around that, me speaking as GM says now that never happened but um, sometimes I have been forced to it, it's an avoidable option but it, but it is going to break disbelief so it's, I, I, pref- I prefer to avoid it again but if, if in doubt always, you can always introduce time travel no, I have players who complain about my introducing time travel and parallel worlds into every bloody thing that I do <laughs> I try to avoid it in Glorantha though I did once drop Santa Claus in during sacred time if it was good enough for C.S. Lewis. Yeah, well, yeah, it was a mistake, all right. It was just this guy in a red suit and some flying reindeer. I'm thinking about the Crimson Bat. I shouldn't be thinking about the Crimson Bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to feed Santa Claus to the Crimson Bat. There's a title for a pop song. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there is a limit, but if you can, prepare the basic... Here's what the world is like for your players. There should be at least um, a page or so on each um, major plot element. Many years ago, I was in a play-by-post role-playing game called Where the Power Lies. I don't know if anybody out there remembers it. It was a Dune-esque interstellar soap opera. And one of the units of currency in the in the game were the information sheets that your characters could dig out from uh, their various sources by 
doing an action each each month. You could do research on this, right? And the um, and it beca- it became the A4 si- sided briefs, which gave you more information about what you could do in the game, more potential moves for your characters to exploit, and the deep background became a sort of currency between the postal pe- players because. You you knew about this, and you could circulate and share it with with, with other people. They could presumably dig them out for themselves, but that would cost them in game. Yeah, and uh, and uh, became, I think the that every player, every referee should learn the art of writing an A4 side on any topic that might come up and might be useful. I've done it myself, and it focuses the mind wonderfully. Speaking of which, another thing that focuses the mind wonderfully in the process of getting a campaign together is getting your players to sign up for it. Um, I think we should talk about the process of writing the prospectus for what you're going to do next. Next. Yes. A thing that has become very popular recently, and I think deservedly so, is the the idea of, of of a short pitch. Yeah. And specifically, a pitch that says this is the sort of people who are going to be in the game and this is the sort of thing they're going to do. Yeah. And it should be about that long. Um, warriors and wizards who go down the hole in the ground fight monsters and take their treasure. OK, I don't go... I, I will go for a paragraph. Let me... Let, let me. I don't object to that, but, but I think if one can get a sentence version out of it, that's even better. It, it defines the, the things that the players will be expecting. You want the elevator pitch? Yes. Yeah. Uh, military veterans who fly to, from world to world in a tramp starship trying to make the loan payments. Resistance fighters who try to get the remnants of humanity safe from the rebellious robots. Mm. Yeah, I, it, It's not the full thing, but it gives people some idea of, OK, what sort of character am I going to play and what yeah. am I going to be doing? Because my experience with campaigns that I haven't enjoyed, and I don't, I don't want to assign blame to GM or me or other players or any, anybody yeah. specific, is expectation mismatch. Mm. If, I, if I'm after rebuilding the world after the apocalypse and the GM wants to run a game of fighting the robots after the apocalypse, yeah. there is going to be a clash there. Yeah, I ran a quite successful campaign set on uh, Earth, the, uh, the world of Gert's Bainstorm, set in the city of Tredroy, um, where the players were practicals, what's called uh, people who are fixers for hire, um, sort of a combination of um, enforcers, private detectives, and um, general um, persons who go down mean streets. And the way I'd written the prospectus implied to at least one player that they were going to flout the law considerably more than they actually got to, and that was um, a source of resentment. He enjoyed the campaign, but he had written his his character to be a good deal nastier than uh, than was practical under the circumstances. Right, and he felt that I had misled him into what he, into what the campaign was going to be about, and uh, it has to be careful. You have to be careful in what you imply as in, as well as what you say. Um, yeah, I find that when I when I get to the end of um, a run, I then go off and let somebody else um, run for a while. And after we're coming to the end of that um, intervening campaign, I sit down and I write myself a list of various things that I would like to do. Mm. 
I go for about a, par- a paragraph, though a, a lead sentence which says it's about this. Yeah, I, I've got no objection to doing more than that. Yeah, um, um, but I, yeah, you want you want the you want the the first line to be the eye grabber, the yeah. too long did not read bit, and then the, they might read read the. Um, the, the deeper, exp- the longer explanation. I do tend to do a similar thing myself. Uh, a, a thing that I, I have found as a useful filter in, in this process mm. is can I come up pretty much off the top of my head with at least five separate adventure ideas for this campaign? Because if I can't, I'm going to be scraping the barrel when I need to come up with the 10th or 15th. Well, true. I also find that if I write something out and it's not gelled, then I really shouldn't have it in the, in, in the list. Writing something out and make, trying to make it clear in your own mind, actually putting it down on paper to persuade other people. Very helpful. Very helpful, because then you know what you really want to do. And the things that you may be longing for, you, you thought you'd been longing for, isn't really going to work. It's, yeah. it's sad, but true. And, uh, and oftentimes the players will look at it and say, this really, is this really something you want to do? They're right, unfortunately. I have a soft spot, as I think I've mentioned before, for, for the transformative moment. Mm. Um, the point at which the zombie plague is breaking out. The point yeah. at which the first people are getting psychic powers. Yeah. Some of these work for campaigns, some of them don't. But it's not going to, the campaign isn't always going to be about that moment anyway, because time's going to move on. What, what I'm actually tending to do at the moment is, is channel that tendency into one-shot games that I run at conventions. Yeah. The... The thing is, is, is the thing with the superhero movies, they're always about the origin. Because that's an easy thing to, to write uh, the movie about becoming the hero. And yet, to, be, to borrow the terminology, most superheroes are iconic characters. Most of them are presented in their first issues as, yeah. here is the superhero. And only later on will you find out where they came from. Not always, but often. Mm. Well, yeah. Actually, that's, that's possibly true. I think... Hmm. And I, I think there's a similar problem comes in where what, one of the standard things done in superhero stories is we will take away his powers for a bit and see how he copes. Yeah. But because we know it's an iconic story, not a transformative story, yeah. we know that by the end it's going to be back to normal. Hmm. So, so that lessens the tension. Yeah. But th- this is not quite about designing no. a campaign briefing. I don't know if it's a good idea to mention system in, campa- in campaign briefings or, or not. It's reassuring to, to some players um, and frightening to others. Uh, I have had players who said, no, I don't want to learn anything new. I don't want to try any new systems. And on the other hand, I've had, I've had players say to me, oh, yeah, let's try that one. I've never done it before. I want to do something new. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure um, whether it's a good idea to mention the system or not. I usually do because I usually have a system in mind when I'm coming up with the idea. Yeah. Um, and as regular listeners will be well aware, I tend to run in GURPS unless I have an overpowering reason to run in something else, which, for example, might be a Pendragon. Uh, yeah. I would run Pendragon in Pendragon because it it's works. just perfectly suited to it. Yeah. But if there isn't something that compelling, then, yeah, it's going to be GURPS. Hmm. Sometimes um, I want to go back to old games, um, and uh, that's, that's sometimes easy and sometimes tricky to, uh, tricky to sell. There are a number of games. I, I've run so many damn games that, uh, that came to a climax, and we said, "Well, we'll come back to this sometime." And uh, I really, really want to resolve the Treadroy Practicals game. Um, 
there, there is just so much hanging on it. But um, one of these years, I will. One of these decades, I will get around to it. I'm not sure I've really ever had a, a definitive ending to a campaign. I mean, I've, I've got to. Yes, this segment is, is certainly over, and you guys are going home and relaxing for a bit. But I've, I've never, I think, done one where, all right, this is this is the end. It's not going to happen again. These characters are going to re- going to retire. I, I think pros- I probably will for the, for the World War Two game, mm. because it has an obvious end point to the end of the war. Yeah, I have I have a, a, a set of long running GURPS fantasy characters, who are now in excess of five hundred points each, and are ludicrously powerful and skilled. And I tried to write the definitive retiring adventure for them, and it didn't take that. <laughs> and all I'm, go- I'm just going to have to put them up against the secret masters of the universe, and that will either destroy them or destroy the universe. But um, you could listen to Gibbs IOU. No, that's just silly. Let's not be silly. Let us not go there, for it is a silly place. <laughs> but yeah, writing the the uh, the, the prospectus. Is both selling it to, to to the players and selling it to yourself. Yeah, I think is the important thing. To it it is very very helpful, as you were saying, in getting your thoughts straightened out, making sure that yes, that this campaign idea does have some legs to it. It's not just going to be three or four adventures and then mm-hmm. run out of ideas. I think we'll take a break and next talk about overall design for campaigns. established that we have um, all the skills and all the experience to run various sorts of games what have we yet to achieve in our uh, great um, GMing um, careers there are short term and long term things for me Yes, yeah. they're, they're, in, they're in a category system go, um, grief. go on the, the long term ones well every so often I, I like the idea of a places of mystery campaign this, this was in the name you want to, you want to do Indiana Jones. Basically, you, you are a bunch of people travelling to exotic and far-off places and, for some reason unspecified, because it hasn't gelled and that's why I haven't run the game yet, um, you, you are needing to get to these places and do something there. No, no, you're trying to do National Treasure or something equally as silly as that. But part of the problem is what era should it be in? And aer- aeroplanes make life easy. Yeah, that's true. Early aeroplanes make life exciting and sometimes easy, which is possibly better. Yeah, you want the 1930s. You want the 1930s. Yeah, but but do, even, do even steamships make things too easy? Uh-huh. Uh, do, do we want pith-helmeted explorers? And the, These sort of questions are, are what I keep vacillating on and why, why I haven't actually ended up running the game. This is, a, this is a classic case of dither. Yes. I have those all the time. I'm dithering at the moment about whether I should try... I've got a vague idea that I want to do a 1960s uh, super spy thing. Uh, more The Men From U.N.C.L.E. or uh, The Avengers. Um, perhaps Department S. Um, than James Bond. Uh, so that I can have a team of, uh, of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't really come up with a system that I like to, to use it. GURPS is too detailed. And to GURPS action? Yeah, still too damn detailed. Okay. Maybe Feng Shui. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. But uh, but it's a it's a short it's a short term dither problem rather than long term. Oh God, this is too hard. Problem. 
Was he a long-term problem? If that was a short-term um, Well, that, that was more of a long-term thing because I've been thinking about it for ages. In, in, okay. in the short term, I, I get enthusiasms about campaigns, and some of which actually turn into campaigns and some of them don't. Um, um, what, one that I'm setting up at the moment is inspired, in fact, by the discussion we had last time on mm-hmm. here, which is an, an early interstellar exploration game. Yeah, I am impressed by the amount of work you're getting done on that, by the way. I, I uh, hang on. But the, but the basic idea of this is I, I want to put in a few experimental ideas, one of which is little to no combat, because combat is one of those traditional things that is put in for excitement, and I want to see if a game can survive either, either completely without it or at least with very little of it. Possibly, as long as there's other stuff to do, I think. Yeah, well, th- this is what I'm going to try to uh, achieve. I, I've been talk- talking to a friend in the Australian Antarctic Division mm-hmm. to see how, how they do things there. And what uh, makes his life exciting? Well, she's a medic. All right. Uh, Other people dying. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's the combination of a hostile environment, but in in her case, of course, not immediately fatal if you just step out without your helmet on, Um, but still fairly hostile, and humans being relatively isolated. I mean, these days they have internet links and so on, but it's still fairly isolating. Yeah. And... Back in the day, you you had a telex allowance of you know, a, a couple of hundred words per month for all your friends and family. And if you're doing the interstellar explorer, then uh, your your communications allowance is getting the ship back home again. Indeed. Yeah, well, that, could, that could be interesting. So, so I want to look into the psychology of it as well, because yeah. uh, yes, fundamentally, this is not a game about exploring robots. This is a game about people. So the people are going to be a factor there. I have I have copious notepads full of stuff that I've started, dithered about, and then abandoned. Um, I have uh, some notes about uh, the Three Musketeers in various settings, because at one stage one of my groups was reduced to three players, and it seemed like the logical thing to do, Captain. Um, I have notes about a campaign set in the world of the Durini books, but in the prehistory, because the Durini came, come from one of the one of the kingdoms that actually sank beneath the sea, so I wanted to do a pseudo-Atlantis game, <laughs> which is uh, still hanging about and may actually get run sometime. I, I seem to have a um, subconscious urge to, to run campaigns in every world that Phil Masters has written. This was not deliberate, I just noticed after a bit that many many of the books that I was looking at and wanting to run seemed to have been written by him. <laughs> he is an insidious secret master of gaming. My two big um, long-term blethers are... Um, Tecumel, for one. Tecumel, it's not the complexity of the social setting, it's actually a small detail of the um, of the background which the original author didn't think deeply about. Um, as we've established, talking to old geezer a while back, uh, Professor Barker himself tended to be a bit um, freeform with the, the systems yeah. he, he used, um, basic modified... D&D and a lot of hand wavium and he put a lot of pulpish stuff into it there's a very um, 1930s SF feel to a lot of Tecumel but my major problem is the magic systems now magic systems are a bugger to adapt to Mm -hmm. a generic system from somebody else's specific vision of how it works Um, there's a lot of um, Vancian, um ornate detail in the um, in the magic system of of Tecumel. 
and there's also a distinction between psionic and ritual magic which he hasn't really thought through at any point mm-hmm. and I feel that psionics which is a pulp element um, a, a, a 1930s science fiction element should have a different system and therefore a different feel when the players operate it from ritual magic and yeah. I keep making notes and dithering about how I'm going to ad- adapt it has Sir met GURPS thaumatology? Uh, Sir has, and uh, Sir wishes that GURPS had a decent spell construction system instead of what it's got. Mm. Uh, something something that works like um, the Ars Magica spell generation system would be a distinct blessing when you're adapting uh, GURPS to um, to specific worlds. It's some of the way there, but it's certainly not all yeah, there. Um, at the moment, I'm dithering between um, using GURPS. I have run Techimel with GURPS before, and the psychic bits, the psionic powers, adapt perfectly. But, oh, it would be a, it has been a terrible bugger trying to get the, the ritual magic to have the feel that Barker gives it, as well as a set of mechanics that I can live with. Mm-hmm. And as you hinted earlier, at the moment, I'm um, dithering about uh, getting rain together. Rain has certain weaknesses... It does have a good system for the ritual magic system, which I just actually have to do the hard work on. <laughs> um, it's not so good for the psychic uh, magic, though I think there may be a solution to that. And it's really quite terrible in doing um, non-humans um, alongside humans. It seemed to me, with my very limited experience of it, which in fact was when you were running it, that it was much more about... I am broadly good at this or that, or broadly bad mm. at this or that, than the sort of nitpicky detail that many role players, including me, like. Yeah, um, I actually found GURPS um, a little too awkward with non-humans because once you start statting out the non-humans, as the professor described them in various games and in various uh, books, their uh, the, their little quirky little bits start to be um, start to be an embarrassment of accumulation. It's all right when you're doing something like D&D or, or a, a more flavoursome system where you can say, all right, I'm a hoggier, I've got four arms and four legs and I smell peculiar and I have no manners. And that's just about it. But when you start considering what 360-degree vision does to somebody in GURPS, it gets far <laughs> too complicated. As I, I, the other thing, and this is pure... The other big project that I dither on for a long time and I keep making notes on is Han. I I do not like Han Master as a system. Um, it it doesn't it doesn't work for me. But I do love the depth of background that the Han magic system gives it. And again, it's adapting it to a generic system that I can work with, which is usually um, when I'm working on this GURPS. Magic is a bastard if it hasn't been designed for the system from the start. And yes, I think I think that's a general rule we can apply I, I, to any world. I've had similar uh, difficulties looking at Shadowrun. Getting Shadowrun into GURPS is actually very, very easy, except for the magic. Yeah. There are... Why? That specifically one. It's a spell list system. Yeah. And the spell effects are very tied into the mechanics, so that it's not immediately obvious what's what is really happening. Mm. Um, 
while at the same time they're very blunt in that it's a, a roll against this versus that, and if you fail you take that much damage. Mm. And it would be nice to have a bit more flavour because it, if, if one ends up converting four different spells and they end up doing the same game mechanical thing with a different special effect, that's not really much fun. No, I've found that with... Um, I've found that uh, with, um, with with some of the techimel stuff that... Uh, Doom Kill and um, and the some of them. Uh, Doom Kill is a is a is a cloud of poison gas, which explodes in an explosive manner. And um, and if you if you throw a fire a fire a bolt of uh, magically created lava, it turns out much the same sort of effect in wounding people, and it's a bit dull. Mm. And here I I'd hope to spell called Doom Kill would, would give free puppies and kittens to everybody. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Don't worry, we will get around to it sometime, sooner or later. So those are things we're hoping to get around to at some time. What, what about things that we have tried and didn't really come out too well? All right, well, this is my, my tale of sorrow. My big tale of sorrow was the time I ran in Nominee. Now, for those of you who don't know, in Nominee is a game set in the war between angels and devils. Um... God has retired to the higher heavens. Lucifer is still prowling around um, in the background. And you are a lower-ranking angel um, or demon trying to please your superiors and um, not get the war too complicated or draw it to the attention of the human beings. Right. So I thought this was a good idea. And I thought I would run it in um, a fictional Eastern European country... Um, Euphrania, actually, from the uh, from the old movie uh, The Slipper and the Rose, which shows you how geeky I was feeling. Hey. Euphrania, as it has just been liberated from communist um, oppression in the in the in the nineteen eighties nineties, and this was a good idea, except when it came to the point where I had to decide between whether they were going to play angels, whether they were going to play demons. I wanted to play angels. Some of my players really wanted to play demons. So what did I do? I tried to do both. And this was really, really dumb. This was me being too clever. I decided to run a campaign in which they played the the alternate sides, alternate weeks. Now, can you count the ways that this can go wrong? Because I think it did. We had fun, but the point at which one of the demons was leading one of the angel characters to hell on a leash possibly indicated why it was not it did not entirely work and that the, the fact that none of the other player characters really should have appeared in anybody else's storylines and i it was just a really dumb thing to do don't ever do this please please none of you are going to but it was just please when you are a gm don't try to be too clever a thing that I have to class as a failure because it never really got started, though, though I would, would have liked the... I, I liked the idea. Yeah. Was a collaborative cyberpunk game. This was back when I, I knew quite a lot of people who were playing cyberpunk. Yeah. And the idea was, of, of these eight or so people, each would take one section of the city in which he would be running games. Yeah. Uh, but characters could, in theory, pass between the, between the games... And that there would be certain rough guidelines on, you know, not not getting too overpowering and not not breaking people's plots and so on. I think it was an interesting idea, but we just never really got very far with it. I've never actually had a, a, a table at which I've sat where I thought 
all of these people around me I would trust to run a, uh, to GM again. <laughs> and, 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 and be fair, that there have always been players in my, in my groups who have said, I'm never going to GM. No, I'm not. That's a relatively recent thing for me. Uh, in, in my early days of role-playing, it was assumed that everybody would take a turn at GMing at some point. Some would be better than others, sure, but basically everyone would do it. It's only in the last ten years or so that I've met players who simply say, no, I'm never going to GM. Or in some cases, who say, I tried it once and everybody else says, no, you're never going to GM again. <laughs> but this was before I met them. Yeah, that is, yeah. Um, I, I've been in some of those campaigns where, where they've tried and they decided, no, this really isn't for me. Oh, and one other thing um, that seemed like a good idea at the time. I have a, an Ask Magica problem. I like the game. I really want to run it but I'm completely crap at it and I don't find it an easy system to learn. I have two or three times tried to run uh, Ask Magic again. I discovered afterwards that I was making one of the primary base errors, which is to try and run your first Ask Magic campaign with a newly set up covenant of, of wizards, um, where, there are, there is, where they, they are going to somewhere new and uh, setting up a, um, a new... Um, arcane um, arcane community well away and apparently this is something that causes most of the GMs who try it to fail first mm -hmm. time. And I really feel if you're listening um, out there at this games, I really feel you should put that in the book. Is, is this perhaps similar to the GURPS character design problem in that you, you need to know what you're going to need out of your yeah, out of your covenant before you. Well, I did, I did. I did talk to one um, experienced Ask Magica uh, GM about the, uh, about the problem that caused me to give up my uh, internet-based campaign, which was that I couldn't figure out how to fill the library with books um, that would be left there by a previous generation of wizards. And he looked at me and he said, "Yeah, actually, there is no good solution to that." So, yeah, that's another thing they probably ought to take a look at. Yeah, what, what one failed game of mine was actually an earlier version of this exploration game that I seem to have been hocking at for a while. Yeah. Uh, it was going to be an exploration of Mars, but it just kind of petered out, and I, I think some of that was that I was interested in the idea of people being explorers mm. and the, the transformative moments. Again, you know, the first actual landing on Mars, find, yeah. finding the dubious alien what's it's that I planted there. Yeah. Whereas the, the um, players were, were more interested in the actual ongoing plots, which I hadn't put enough thought into. Mm. I have, so, yeah, I have occasionally. Yeah, you found aliens. What next? I have occasionally found myself um, with the players looking at me saying, "Michael, this isn't really working." And I have occasionally said to my players, "Look, this isn't really working." Um, I think the last time was. Um, Pendragon game. I found Pendragon 5 um, a little survival unfriendly um, the last time I ran it. I love the setting, I love the campaign. I did try to run it once. It kind of petered out partly because I was being too slow in answering things. This is a play by email game. Yeah. I, I would really love to give that another go at some point. We all, I think we've both got a lot of stuff we'd really like to give another go yep. sometime again. Unfortunately, lack of players, lack of hours in the day to prepare. Mm. So many games, so little time. Yeah. Uh, Robert Duchet wrote to us and, sa and said, we've stopped going on about how old we are. I think we should do that more. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... 
think that might do for this month. <laughs> and please send us more, more things to inspire us to waffle on at great length to podcast at tekeli.ly. And next month, we'll see you again.